to start with the reading for today. Um, we'll have it on the screen, I guess, will we? Uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. If you want to read it with me, please do. It's great if you do that. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge ooh, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Amen. That was the verse 11. Okay, so I'm going to speak about this passage, and I just pray, Lord, that I may honor the name of Jesus with the help of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So, yeah, friends, we're approaching Christmas, only one week to Christmas, but I want to talk today about not the cradle, not the wise men, not the shepherds. I want to talk about Christ's loving humility. That's the title I uh, had for this talk, Christ's loving humility. And we're going to use the passage that I've just read to you, which is from Paul's letter to the Philippians. Background on that, just to tell you, is that the letter that Paul wrote uh, was in, when he was in prison in Rome, and he wrote it to a church that he loved a great deal in Philippi that was suffering a lot of struggles and oppression. And his passion was that they would be united. This is quoting from chapter 1, 27 and 28. He said, stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. The letter was really, a, I'm surely a great encouragement to them, but what I hope we're going to see is it's got deep meaning for us today, and especially it's going to help us better to understand the full meaning of Christmas. And that's especially in the light of that amazing account of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that we just read together. Verses 6 to 11, that by being nature God, he made himself nothing to death on the cross, therefore he was exalted. Those 
summary of those words. One, many believe that Paul was actually writing out an early Christian hymn, uh, something that the Christians had already evolved themselves, um, that, those particular verses. So yeah, Christ-loving humility. Let's start by asking the question, what is humility? So I had a look on the online, there's a few useful definitions, I think. How about this, freedom from pride or arrogance? Freedom from pride or arrogance. The quality of having a modest or low view of your importance. That's okay, yeah? Or an attitude of modesty that comes from an understanding of our place in the wider scheme of things. Those are just a few dictionary definitions of what humility is. I think they're helpful, but it's noticeable. They don't say anything explicit about our relationships, whereas the passage is very much focused on how we relate to one another uh, and maybe to wider humanity. I would suggest that the best way to understand humility is by looking at Jesus himself. And that's the core message of today's passage in three words is this, let's imitate Jesus' humility. Imitate Jesus' humility. Don't be an arrogant person and think you're better than others. As Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. That's a really core verse from that passage. So what's this got to do with Christmas? Well, I think it's the way that Jesus, when we consider the way that Jesus showed humanity, I think we're going to see the main point. And that's again, just quoting from the passage, Jesus being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. He made himself nothing. Or, the Amplified and other versions say, he emptied himself, he emptied himself. Now, I think it's common, we can all do it, to approach Christmas as like the birth of any normal baby, a wonderful person, but little beyond that, someone who just comes into existence. But what Paul's reminding us here of is that for Jesus, being born was not at all the beginning of the story. Being in very nature God, it reminds us that Jesus did not come, in a sense, from nothing, as human children do, as far as we know. He was equal with God, the Father, and God the Holy Spirit in an eternal, conscious, and perfect relationship of love from before the beginning of the universe. Amen? Amen. Jesus himself reminds us of this in John's Gospel, for example. When the the crowd talked about Abraham, he said, very truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was born, I am, John 8, 58. Or John 6, 38, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of the one who sent me. Again, a good summary of what we're saying here. Just think, though, friends, of what Jesus gave up when he came to be born in that stable. He gave up the worship of angels. He gave up eternal bliss at the Father's right hand. He gave up the rule of the universe. For what? 
being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus would have known as he prepared to be born a human child that he would suffer torture and a horrible death, all to bring humanity, the crown of God's creation, back into God's loving presence as God, Godwin and uh, OJ were just showing us, the prodigal son coming back to the father. He did that so that that could happen. He could have refused, but he chose to obey God's will. He chose not to, quote again, consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. What wondrous love is this, as the song puts it. As his life proceeded, we see too, every interaction he had with others was characterized by that same humility, taking on the very nature of a servant, putting others first. When we think of Christmas, Paul is giving us a summary here in three words. Christ made himself nothing. Christ made himself nothing. Please reflect on that. Again, in effect, what Jesus was doing was coming to earth as the prodigal son did. And as we've just been hearing in earlier weeks and as Godwin and O.J. have shown us, Compared to the glory he had in heaven, it's as if Jesus came to earth in rags. It's as if he came in rags, but unlike the prodigal son, he didn't come repenting and saying, I'd done something wrong. He was obeying the will of his father coming to save those who had transgressed. On the cross, he lost the eternal loving embrace of his father so that we in our own rags might come into the father's arms. Amen? Amen. One thing that fascinates me but we'll only get to know in heaven is how much did Jesus know of his mission and pre-existence as he grew up? And there are clues in scripture that he might have known a certain amount, perhaps aided by his close, very close prayer relation with his father. The two quotes from John's gospel that I mentioned before Abraham was I am, etc., suggested he knew something about his past. When he was a teenager, stayed in the temple, he said to his searching parents, why are you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Luke 2.49. But it's also clear that Jesus used the Old Testament as his mission manual. I did a series on that once. Why else would he have quoted the servant song in Isaiah 53, for example, in saying, even as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many, Mark 10:45. Well, you may say Jesus is Jesus, He's fully God and fully man. How could I aspire to such humility as he showed? And I think part of the answer that can help us is that there are other people, even in the Christmas story, but elsewhere in the Bible too, who emptied themselves and made themselves nothing in their own way. Look at Mary, for instance, a young woman at the start of her life, no doubt with exciting plans for the future, 
when she married her beloved Joseph, and yet she chose to bear the baby, Jesus, in a society where extramarital sex ran the risk of being stoned to death. And even if she was spared, she'd be likely to lose her marriage, become an outcast. She would have a devastating loss of status. But what did she say to the angel Gabriel? She said this, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled, Luke 1.38. She chose, in other words, to empty herself to fulfill God's will, humbly and obediently to be his servant, to bear Jesus the greatest gift ever to bless humanity. Similarly, I expect Joseph was, I imagine, Joseph was building up his carpentry business. He was looking forward to marrying Mary, a lovely young woman of good family, who would bear him sons and daughters, a family that would bless them in their old age and in their lives. But again, what happened? His plans were shattered by the working of God's will when he became aware that Mary was pregnant. He could have acted aggressively in his disappointment at her seeming unfaithfulness, divorcing her publicly, even asking for her to be stoned. How else, he would think, do humans get conceived other than by sex? And we shouldn't be misled by the gentle expression in Matthew's Gospel. He considered this. It's clear from the Greek he was absolutely livid with anger. But for him again, the angel of the Lord appeared, in this case in a dream, and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save the people from their sins, Matthew 1, 20 to 21. And so again, he emptied himself and subordinated his plans to God. He did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, quote, humbly, obediently willing to serve God, putting up, no doubt, with many sneering and cynical comments from his relatives and neighbors as a result. I could go on. Even the kings from the east must have shown humility to meet up with Mary and Joseph with the baby Jesus in a smelly stable, if that's what happened, far from their opulent palaces. But you get the idea. Christmas is a joyous celebration, certainly, of the loving gift of salvation that Jesus won on the cross. But it's more than that, as Paul's saying here in today's passage. It's also a lesson to us in the type of behavior to which God lovingly calls us as his image bearers here on earth. The theologians talk of two things that Jesus did or that we have, uh, need to follow, justification and sanctification. Justification is the rescue from sin and death, the reconciliation to God that appears when we put our faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord and his sacrificial death on the cross as the prodigal son embraces the father. He is justified. But the second, sanctification, is the process of getting more and more what Paul calls the same mindset as Christ Jesus in our relationships with one another and with God. 
Now, justification and sanctification sound like very complicated and difficult things to get our heads around. I've got a better way to remember it. We're going to have a bit of audience participation. Start singing, There is a Green Hill. There is a green hill far away outside the city wall where the dear Lord was crucified who died to save us all. We may not know, we cannot tell what pains he had to bear but we believe it was for us he hung and suffered there. Listen. He died that we might be forgiven. He died to make us good. Stop. You can sing the rest in your own time. <laughs> that line. He died that we might be forgiven. He died to make us good. Amen? Amen? There you got it. Justification, be forgiven. Sanctification, make us good. Remember it that way. Just the third, first line of the third verse of there is a green hill. And just remember, he died to make us good. We're not made good to earn our salvation. That's what Jesus did, the forgiven bit. As Paul puts it in Ephesians 2.10, we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do, emulating Jesus' humility. So yeah, what are we called to do here to emulate our Lord? I think the passage is quite clear on how we should be. It says we have to be like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind doing nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each to the interests of the others. If we do that, we're getting on the way to indeed having the same mindset as Christ himself, as he came here to save humanity, not for his own sake, but for ours. Amen. The watchwords are clear from the rest of the passage. He was a servant to others. He helped them and was not demanding of them. He was obedient to God's will that calls on us to love our neighbor as we do ourselves, Matthew 22:39, And being humble, not seeking our own honor, but to honor God, amen. He's a servant, obedient to God's will and humble. And we've seen that in both Mary and Joseph. So yeah, how can we do that? I got no pat answers for this, but I got some reflections, and I encourage you to reflect too. How do we emulate, in other words, Jesus' loving humility, as Paul is telling us in this passage? I think one answer is the old wristbands that the kids used to have, WWJD, what does it mean? Yeah, exactly, think every occasion, what would Jesus do in each situation we meet? We might recall what Jesus said in the parable of the sheep and the goats. We put others first. When we put others first, especially those who suffer, we serve him. Amen? The difficult one, maybe, is the humility, having the attitude that clearly values others above ourselves. 
And I think maybe it's partly a question of realizing, realizing that we aren't God. We're just creatures. We know better than anybody else. Emptying ourselves, if we can, of selfish desires. It's not something that happens overnight. The Holy Spirit's help is essential for us to become humbled like Jesus. A lifelong process, what sanctification is all about. Just another thought I have is that we can try and think how, especially when they're young, we are who are, when we're parents, we put the welfare of our children above our own. In a sense, we empty ourselves. Amen? The, the challenge could be to do that for others as well. And it applies equally, maybe, to those who have caring responsibilities, to extend the care we give to uh, the person in question, to our neighbors and friends. And then we can ask some questions. We can say, how can we apply Jesus' loving humility more to, for example, those who simply can't make hot meals because the cost of gas and electric? What about people who are lonely? How can they be encouraged in Jesus' humility to emerge from their isolation? Or to give another recent issue, half the village hasn't got water, or it didn't until recently. The challenge that I felt, which I didn't really carry out, but was thinking about, shouldn't we as Christians have said, well, if you need a shower, come to my house? Just some thoughts. And yeah, the boxes are great in this context because they're reminding us of some of the difficult situations people are in that we might be able to uh, take part with the Holy Spirit's help in God's repair shop. I'm going to give a bit more thought on Christ's loving humility with a famous example before I close, but I want to note first what we need to avoid. And Paul makes it explicit. We've heard it before. Avoid selfish ambition or vain conceit. Jesus has got a wonderful illustration of this in the parable of the guests in Luke 11, I think, which tells of an arrogant person invited to a wedding. And so that person just goes straight to the place of honor, yeah? But then the host comes and tells them, someone more distinguished than you has arrived. And you've got to move seats to one of lesser importance. You end up humiliated. And he contrasts that with the person of humility who takes the least important place. And they're honored when the host moves them to a better place. As Jesus puts it, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. It's 14, Luke 14, 11. Lack of humility leads to humiliation. Yeah? Lack of humility leads to humiliation. And I learned the cost of arrogance back in 1982 or thereabouts when I was two years into working at the Bank of England. I wasn't a Christian at the time, right? So myself and two colleagues were going to do a sketch in the economics division Christmas party. In retrospect, I can see we were on top of the world. We thought we were in a fine institution. We were young, intelligent, productive, ferociously competitive. So what we thought we'd do was a skit in the style of Derek and Clive. Anyone remember Derek and Clive? Peter Cook and Dudley Moore were seeking to be ever more extreme and insulting. It was quite popular at the time. And I have to admit that I wrote most of the text that was indeed slightly funny, but also rather insulting to colleagues, staff, and the bosses. Anyway, we were taken to task 
by the boss afterwards for going over the top. Our lack of humility led to humiliation. Humility isn't easy to obtain, to attain. It's countercultural to put others before themselves. It's not the way the world is thought to work. I can recall an older lady when I worked on the railways as a student in my summer holiday saying this, blow your own trumpet because no one else will blow it for you. Eh? Blow your own trumpet. But if you think more deeply, I think you'll see that selfishness is not only contrary to God's will but also harmful to ourselves. I'm reminded of the old story that in both heaven and hell, there's lovely food but only long spoons to eat it with, yeah? You must have heard this story. In heaven, there is joy because people serve each other with their long spoons. But in hell, there is despair and misery as people try in vain to eat the food themselves rather than helping others. So yeah, I hope that's given you food for thought. But before I close, I just want to relate an inspiring example of a person who took seriously Paul's call in your relationships with one another to have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, a servant obedient to God's will and humble, Mother Teresa. I think you probably know the broad pattern of her life. She devoted it to caring for the sick and the poor. She was born in Macedonia with the name Agnes to parents of Albanian descent. And then she went to teach as a nun in India for 17 years. She then experienced what she called a call within a call in 1946. And her order established a hospice, centers for the blind, aged and disabled, a leper colony. Truly, she was active in God's repair shop. Amen. So yeah, in 1979, she received the Nobel Prize. She died in 97 and was later made a saint by the Catholic Church. But I just want to relate a couple ways, a few ways that she showed the same mindset as Christ Jesus in humility, valuing others above ourselves, which challenges us all, I think, and certainly me. Firstly, I think it's uh, very encouraging that she was strongly influenced in generosity and putting others first from her mother. By no means wealthy, uh, her mother extended an open invitation in the city of Skopje where they lived to the destitute to dine with her family. And she said this to her daughter, my child, never eat a single mouthful unless you are sharing it with others. Never eat a single mouthful unless you are sharing it with others. And when her name was Agnes then asked who the people eating with them were, her mother replied, some of them are our relations, but all of them are our people. That's an encouragement I think for us as we do or will bring up children uh, in a Christian way. And of course, just becoming a nun himself is a form of emptying because she renounces thereby marriage, children, and possessions. But yes, yeah, second, 15 years after becoming a nun, she was a teacher, then the principal of a Catholic school. She was teaching geography and history in India, that is, of course. And then, as it, we said, in 1946, she was riding in a train from Calcutta to the Himalayan foothills for a retreat when she felt that Christ spoke to her and told her to abandon teaching, to work in the slums of Calcutta, aiding the city's poorest and sickest people. She was out there with no income. She had to beg for food and supplies. 
She experienced doubt, loneliness, and the temptation to return to comfortable convent life. And it was at that point, clearly, she did empty herself a second time to become a true servant, obedient to God's will and humble. And she wrote this, Our Lord wants me to be a free nun covered with the poverty of the cross. This is when she was begging at the very start. Today I learned a good lesson. The poverty of the poor must be so hard for them. While looking for a home, I walked and walked till my arms and legs ached. I thought how much they must ache in body and soul, looking for a home, food and help. Then the comfort of Loreto, which is where she was previously as a teacher, as a head principal, came to tempt me. The tempter said, you only have to say the word and all this will be yours again. Of free choice, my God, and out of love for you, I desire to remain and do whatever be your holy will in my regard. I did not let a single tear come. See how it fits with Philippians 2, yeah? Third, just another illustration, she was invited to a grand function where there was a great feast at lunch. And after lunch, Mother Teresa started to collect the leftovers from the lunch plates served at the party hall. Others made fun of her, but she replied politely, there are many poor children who have never tasted most of the food served here. And fourth, finally, she had deformed feet. And the reason for that was because she always took the worst shoes from the collection in order that others had the better ones and they could go to the poor and the destitute, valuing others above herself. And she had a lovely saying, I think it fully in line with our passage today. Love cannot remain by itself, it has no meaning. Love has to be put in action and that action is service, as it was for Jesus in his loving humanity, humility. So as I close, here's the Christmas challenge. In humility, words of scripture, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but to the interests of others, as Christ did in stepping down from his heavenly glory, as Mary and Joseph did in emptying themselves to be obedient to God, as Mother Teresa did in voluntarily living with the destitute, tempted to return to the comfort of her convent. So our challenge is indeed, how can we follow their example? How can we put others first, honoring God and not ourselves? A pause as we reflect. If God has prompted you, just do it, is all I can say. It's in developing the same mindset as Christ Jesus that we are going to find more and more, to quote from the start of the passage, encouragement from being united with Christ, comfort from his love, common sharing in the spirit, tenderness and compassion. We will be following Jesus' command in John 13, 34, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. So we can joyfully acknowledge today and finally in heaven that Jesus indeed has the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And as each and every one of us emulate Jesus' loving humility, we will be more and more a church that is indeed a light on the hill, serving those in need and attracting those lost in darkness. Amen.